I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Alfonso David is the president of the Human Rights Campaign, the largest LGBTQ civil rights organization in the country. In this Pride Month, he talks about the importance of the Equality Act, which is awaiting a vote in the Senate, and he talks about the motivations behind all those anti-trans measures targeting school athletes. David is also the first black person to lead HRC and has made it his mission to show the organization's leadership and membership the importance of viewing the fight for LGBTQ equality through an intersectional lens. Liberation is elusive if you don't look at it through an intersectional lens. What exactly does Afonso David mean by that? Find out right now. Alfonso David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. Okay, so um, you are the president of the Human Rights Campaign, uh, the largest LGBTQ civil rights organization in the country. And as such, Mr. President, I will ask you, what is the state of LGBTQ plus America right now? The state of LGBTQ America right now is strong. We have more than 70% of voters in this country that support equality. We have more than two-thirds of Americans in this country that oppose LGBTQ rights. Unfortunately, that message is not being delivered to the elected officials in state offices across the country. We have more than 250 bills that have been introduced in state legislatures around the country, more than 250 anti-LGBTQ bills. These are bills that are seeking to deny our very existence. These are bills that are seeking to deny transgender people from using restrooms consistent with their gender identity, from playing in sports consistent with their gender identity, denying public school teachers the ability to teach about LGBTQ issues, using religion as a way to discriminate against LGBTQ people. So unfortunately, we are in a position today where we have elected officials in states across the country, more than 40 states, that have introduced anti-LGBTQ bills that do not honor the principles of our democracy and certainly ignore um, the will of the people, more than 70% that do support equality. Okay, so it's only been since, this is 2021, 2015, so six years. No, my math is wrong. Yeah, no, my math is right. Six years since the Supreme Court ruled in Obergefell that um, same-sex couples had a constitutional right to marry. At that time, a lot of people thought, "Hey, victory is ours. It's all done. You know, we're we are we are all set." And you know, I and I'm sure you and some, but other um, uh, LGBT journalists were like, uh, "That's not the end of anything." And I think for some people who might be listening to this to to hear that there are 250 bills in 40 states that are meant to deny us uh, our rights or basic humanity might come as a shock. Why why haven't the opponents of LGBT equality given up? Well, they're they're using um, 
they're using us as a foil. Uh, Anti-equality forces understand that they're losing the battle. They lost the battle to prohibit LGBTQ people from serving as public school teachers. They lost the battle in having our lives criminalized. They lost the battle in denying us the right to marry. And most recently, they lost the battle in 2016 to prohibit transgender people from using restrooms consistent with their gender identity. But this is all about fueling hate and division and fear. And they have a philosophy of using us to mobilize their base. You know, there's an organization called the Americans Principles Project. It's an anti-LGBTQ organization. And in uh, 2019, they gave an interview, the head of the organization gave an interview to the New York Times. And in that interview said that they realized the sky didn't fall when the bathroom bills failed. So they decided to do some polling. And when they shifted from the bathroom ad to the wrestler ad, and they focus on us versus them, and that you lose something by allowing a transgender person to participate in sports, they were able to mobilize their base by four to seven points higher than where they were before. So they are using us to score political points. And what's, what's particularly distressing about this is that they are targeting the most vulnerable members of our community, young transgender people who are more inclined to attempt suicide four times that of their cisgender peers who confront depression and anxiety. So they're targeting this community knowing that the arguments that they're advancing are flawed and in fact dangerous, and they're using us in order order to score political points. They know that they're losing the war. They know every single election cycle we have more and more people who identify as equality voters. Those are voters who prioritize equality at the ballot box. And they know they're losing this battle, so they're trying to attack us in order to seize the moment, in order to build some momentum, uh, in order to uh, basically perpetuate their flawed ideology and philosophy. And I think that's what's going on. And so I want to clear something up because in your initial answer, you said 70% support um, LGBTQ equality, and then you said two-thirds oppose it, but you meant support it. Like the country, or did I get that? No, what I meant by that is, and apologize if I wasn't clear, so 70% of voters support LGBTQ equality. They support non-discrimination laws to protect LGBTQ people at the same time. More than two-thirds oppose these bills that have been introduced in the states. Ah, okay. Got it. Yeah, more than two-thirds oppose these bills that have been introduced in the states. So there is consistency here where the voters are saying, we want LGBTQ people to be protected under law. And in fact, we oppose your efforts to demonize them, to remove protections that they should have in states across the country. I mean, it's just got to be based in just pure, uh, just in pure hatred that the people who are against LGBT equality are are basically shape shifting and morphing um, from you know one moment going going up against same sex couples who want to marry to going up against 
um, the transgender community with bathroom bills. And then, as you just said, when they saw that that didn't work, then focusing in on transgender athletes uh, in high schools. I mean, they're, tar- they're targeting kids. And it's and it's not it's not like there's this army of trans kids out there who are you know taking over sports teams. It just seems it's just so heavy in hatred, and I just don't understand. I, I I mean, look, you you have to be optimistic, but there are moments when I look at what's going on and I just wonder about really about people's hearts. Well, I mean, Jonathan, I share that view as well. Um, and we, I look at our history, not only LGBTQ history, but the history of marginalized communities in this country and how opponents of equality broadly defined have attempted to demonize marginalized communities for political gain. We saw this in the 1960s. When the 1960s uh, Civil Rights Act in 1964 and 1965 was passed. One of the principal concerns that were raised by opponents was, well, if we let this bill go through, if we protect uh, people on the basis of race, then black men and women will win all of the sporting events. Black men are too fast, too strong. Black women are too fast, too strong. Those were the arguments that they used in the 1960s that they're now using today against transgender people. And the the common theme here is they probably understand that the majority of people have never met a trans person. So it's much easier to demonize them. What we did in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, shifting the narrative on marriage equality, was to make sure that people saw us in their living rooms. They saw Will and Grace we were not the boogeymen and women and people. And they are doing that to the transgender community. They're using them as foils in order to advance their political agenda. And so I am optimistic because I see that this flawed narrative has failed before. And I know it's gonna fail again. We just have to do the difficult work of having the uncomfortable conversations with people who have never met a trans person, with people who listen to uh, media outlets that advance false and misleading information uh, to make sure they understand the facts. Because if you ask any elected official who's supporting these anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ bills, what problem are you solving? Identify the problem in your state that you're solving. They're not able to answer that question. It's theoretical. And that's what's most sad about this is They're not even able to identify the specific problem with transgender athletes in sports in their state that they're solving. I mean, that's a great question. And if I could get one of those folks on any platform that I'm on, I will definitely ask them that question point blank. You know, Alfonso, one of the reasons why um, I and um, other queer journalists were saying to the community when marriage equality happened that it's not over um, it was because, great, you're able to get married on Sunday and then you go into work on Monday and you could be fired still. Um, you could go back to your apartment or, or your house or certainly if you, your apartment and find out you've been evicted because there are no protections uh, against 
sexual orientation against discrimination based on sexual orientation or um, uh, gender identity. And that's one of the things that's uh, that we're hoping will get solved through the Equality Act, which is sitting over there in the Senate, past the House, sitting over there in the Senate. So what's can you give it give an update on where things are on the Equality Act? And again, how optimistic are you that the Equality Act can actually become the law of the land when we've seen just what what folks will up there will do to stop legislation? Yes, no, absolutely. So you're 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 absolutely correct. Um, we have a challenge ahead. We have uh, the bill, of course, has passed the House. It is sitting in the Senate. We are engaged with senators on both sides of the aisle about the importance of this bill. The biggest challenge that we face is the misinformation and the disinformation about the Equality Act. Opponents who suggest that if the Equality Act passes, the sky will fall. If the Equality Act passes, churches and mosques and synagogues will, will be destroyed. If the Equality Act passes, life will end as we know it. We heard those same arguments with marriage equality, and the court rejected those arguments. But here, we have elected officials who are getting fed misinformation all the time. And one of our biggest obstacles and challenges is making sure that we inform and educate them as to what the bill actually does. The bill simply updates the Civil Rights Act to include sexual orientation and gender identity and sex in places where it's not currently included, and also protect people of color in places of public accommodation. So many people don't know that, you know, you and I as black men- Protect people of color how? So that's, so most people don't know that you and I as black men could walk into a department store to buy a new shirt or a new pair of jeans, and we could face discrimination, and we would have no protections under federal law. That's because when the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed, the definition of public accommodations did not include retail stores. It did not include transportation hubs. It did not include certain arenas that we now know are public spaces. And the Equality Act would fix that. It would also include sex for public accommodation so we could protect women from discrimination. And so there there are so many important components to the Equality Act that would radically change um, the lives of millions of people across the country. But what some elected officials are hearing is that, well, if you allow this bill to go through, that means that me, elected official or religious leader or place of public accommodation, will be required to do certain things that are just simply not true. And so we're educating um, the elected officials, answering questions, addressing the myths, and I am hopeful that this bill will ultimately be passed. The question is um, how quickly, and um, as we know, there are many other pieces of progressive legislation, including the Voting Rights Act, that is facing similar challenges because there's misinformation about what that bill would do as well. But our job is to make sure we continue down the path of educating elected officials about the bill. Does the Equality Act actually have um, any Republican uh, co-sponsors or even any Republican senators who've gone on record saying they support it? Not at this point. 
So we had Republican uh, support in the House of Representatives, but we have not had a Republican senator go on record as supporting the Equality Act in its current form. We have had Republican senators say that they're interested in supporting the Equality Act, but they may be interested in amendments. And so what kind of amendments are we talking here? Because when Republicans say they want amendments, uh, <laughs> y'all better watch out. Well, that's the, that's the conversation, right? Though Those are the questions that we are um, grappling with right now and getting clarity on, uh, because the amendments we want to make sure are not fueling the misinformation and the disinformation that is out there. If you need clarification in the bill, why is it that you need clarification and on what issue? And so we are really um, encouraged by some of the conversations that we have had, and we're hopeful that we'll be in a position to advance this bill at some point in the near future. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Future. So how long have you been president of HRC now? Is it two years or three years? August will be two years. It seems like a lifetime, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, being president of HRC is one of the hardest jobs uh, in in the movement. So um, I understand what you say when, you know, it seems like a a lifetime. Um, And I jokingly called you, you know, know, Mr. President at the beginning. But in running the organization, it really is sort of analogous because of all of the travel that you have to do, all of the people you have to meet, the the legislation um, at basically every level of government that you have to be mindful of and have a comment on, and you know, two two years in, is the job harder than you thought it would be? <laughs> the job. Uh, so let me say this: when I took the job, I certainly was not anticipating COVID. I was not anticipating the legitimate racial unrest, and I was not anticipating the potential demise of our democracy uh, with the 2020 elections. And so I took on the job, and within six months, COVID-19, as you know, every single organization, every institution was affected. We had to shift our work, virtual, all of it, overnight. We had to engage with our members in meaningful ways. Uh, We had to deal with the fear and the anxiety And then a few weeks later, George Floyd, or a few months later, George Floyd is killed. And sort of having that conversation about how important it is that we look at our work through an intersectional lens certainly was a challenge for some people 
who may not have seen LGBTQ equality really through an intersectional lens and how important it is that they appreciate that liberation is elusive if you don't look at it through an intersectional lens. And then at the same time as I'm managing those two issues, preparing for the fall elections in 2020. And as we saw from the insurrection on January 6th, we came very close to losing our democracy. So the job has certainly been a challenge, uh, but also incredibly rewarding. Uh, because I, I do this work, Jonathan, and I think you know this, I do this work because I believe it in my bones. I believe that uh, I'm trying to, in the organization, I believe folks that are working there are trying to create a place that is not yet reality, but a place that we can create in the future where generations that are yet to come can say, this is better than the world that we founded. And that's ultimately what I'm trying to do in this work, because we're trying to get to that place that we call liberation, where you and I and everyone else who is LGBTQ, a person of color, a marginalized person, can be free, really free in this country. And that's, that's one of the core pillars of the work that I'm doing now. You are also the first Black person to lead this organization um, within, the, within the LGBTQ rights movement. HRC has, a, I should say, had a reputation of being a, a white gay male institution and um, not very responsive to communities outside of that. And then you, be- you become the, the new president of HRC, so the first Black person in the role. And then in your inaugural, at your inaugural um, national dinner, HRC national dinner, you gave this speech that was, from my perspective, a barn burner of a speech because not only did you talk about, um, you know, the state of the movement in that moment, but you held the mirror up to the community itself and really challenged them. And, and some of the things you were just saying in your previous answer are you know, bits and pieces of what you said in that address. And key in there was telling the community that the community must understand the intersectionality um, that the community is in, that there are LGBTQ people who are immigrants and are concerned and worried about what's happening with immigration. Most certainly, the community should be mindful of and understand that that there are Black and Brown people for whom the Black Lives Matter movement is paramount, if not central, and that it is vital for all of the community to be vested in all aspects of who we are as a community. So, one... In the two years since you gave that gave that speech, by the way, that earned a standing a raucous standing ovation, um, how has that message been received, and how has it altered people's thinking, especially because of the timeline you just laid out? COVID, George Floyd, our democracy at risk, and I've had to do the hard work and have the difficult conversations to say. We have to acknowledge our history. We shouldn't be defined by it. 
but we have to acknowledge it. We have to admit that black and brown people, black and brown transgender people created the LGBTQ civil rights movement. We have to honor that history and we have to acknowledge that we did not as a community uh, honor our past. We were not inclusive. We in some ways treated certain members of our community as disposable. And if we're going to get to that place that we call equality, if we're going to uh, really be liberated as a community, we must be intersectional. And I can tell you, Jonathan, that some of those conversations take an hour, some take 45 minutes, uh, but they're long conversations because it's effectively deconstructing how people have been looking at the work for such a long time. You know, I'm fighting for my rights. Great, but you need to understand that your rights affect my rights. And that if you only fight for your rights, we will never achieve equality. The Bostock Supreme Court decision is a perfect example. The case presented to the Supreme Court and the question was whether or not LGBTQ people are protected under federal civil rights laws. But the seminal case brought was by a transgender person. So I asked one of... um, our supporters who was questioning, why is now everything about black transgender women? I said, think about the question before the Supreme Court. And that question now affects your rights. But the question was really brought by a transgender woman. So now do you understand that our rights collectively are inextricably linked and that our quest for liberation is inextricably linked? And it took 45 minutes to have that conversation. But those are the conversations that I have to have because I do think that we have been looking through myopic lenses and we have to think broader, we have to think more inclusively, and we have to mean it. It can't simply be that we're going to say we support intersectionality and we support racial justice. We're going to have to do the work, develop the policies, set the priorities that actually support the work. You have been saying from the very beginning, and even in the, even in that in that speech, and correct me if I'm wrong, you went right there and talked about the epidemic of murders of black trans women and why that is important to the overall community. I wanted to make sure people understood that black and brown trans women were living in a state of crisis and unfortunately still are and that they and all of us have a moral responsibility as a community to support all members of our community. And I can tell you that it was very warmly received by some and others with suspicion because they hadn't heard that message before and they also didn't know what it would mean as it relates to the work. What would it mean as it relates to the work? Does it mean you're gonna prioritize this issue as opposed to the issues I care about. And in some conversations I said, the issue of a black trans woman being fearful of walking home at night is your issue. You may not be black, you may not be trans, but it's your issue because it's about ultimately about freedom. And if she can't be free walking down the street, that means you're not free either. They just haven't come for you yet. I'm sorry, you just knocked me into silence with that one because I'm just sitting there thinking, Wow, what was the reaction, if you can remember, of the person when you said that? Shock. And it it had to sink in. 
right? Because it's sort of thinking through this idea of what kind of community do we want? Because if it's in name only, LGBTQ, then great. But we know that, or at least I hope we know, that that's not really what we mean. This, the work that we're doing is to create equality and ultimately liberation. And if you can't see yourself in the black trans woman, we saw this with the HIV epidemic. We're seeing it now, right? Where all of a sudden the issues that are affecting largely white, in some cases, gay men and trans women, you know, the lesbian community rose up and supported gay men who were being struck with HIV in the early 80s. We have to do the same thing now. And how much of a role um, does race play into other people's understanding of what you're saying? I mean, I get it, but is that because I'm a because I'm black or what? I think race plays a huge role. And what I've said to those that have had some challenges in understanding why this is important is take us take a moment to think about how you can appreciate the lived experiences of others who look nothing like you. We, as people of color, have had to do that throughout our lives. We've had to learn about the lived experiences of others in order to survive and to thrive. But the majority, in most cases, have never had to do that. And asking them to engage in this exercise is instructive um, in helping them understand why this philosophy of equality and intersectional liberation is so important. Um, but I can tell you, you're absolutely right. Race plays a huge role in this conversation. You know, one one issue, to sw- switch gears for a moment, we are in Pride Month, and there, um, and it's a full month, so there are lots of lots of festivals and parades and everything all around the country. Uh, Pride in Washington is uh, at the beginning of the month. Pride in New York City is at the end of the month. And the big controversy that is happening right now in New York is the, um, I was going to say the fight. Yeah, I'll just call it the fight over whether LGBTQ police officers should march in uniform under their banner, Gay Officers Action League, uh, during the Pride Parade. The Heritage of Pride, which is an organization that organizes New York City's Pride Parade at the end of, at the end of June, they banned out police officers from marching in uniform under their banner in the parade. In addition, they are keeping police officers away from the actual festivities and parade, but that's a completely separate issue. Here in Washington, actually, police officers have been uh, banned from marching in uniform. LGBTQ police officers have been banned from marching in in the Pride Parade here in their uniforms since 2018. I'm just wondering, Alfonso, your view on on out LGBTQ police officers being able to march in uniform in the parade. And I'll just say this. My argument is Pride is about being proud of who we are and 
and calling on the world to be proud with us. Pride parades are all about acceptance and pride and come one, come all. And the idea that a subset of our community would be banned from marching in the parade in their in their work clothes just strikes me as like the wrong the wrong message to send even though i understand the motivations behind it and that's just my little thumbnail you can read my you can read my column if you want to get the more specifics but your your view well first let me just say jonathan i think that your opinion piece in the washington post was so well done and so well scripted Um, and quite persuasive. My perspective here is at the outset, we have to recognize that the organizers of the various pride parades have their own governing structures and they determine how to organize their respective prides. So I wanna acknowledge that. Further, I think we have to acknowledge that there has been a conflict between the LGBTQ community and police for decades going as far back as Stonewall and Compton's Cafeteria when black and brown transgender women fought back against police brutality. So we have to acknowledge that history. We have to appreciate how that history informs the present. And then finally, I would say, we also have to acknowledge though, that there are many LGBTQ people who serve in police departments, LGBTQ officers who have faced discrimination and alienation and have fought for visibility to serve openly in their various departments without retribution. I hope that we can reconcile these issues to ensure that pride is as inclusive as possible while we exercise our activism. Those two concepts are not mutually exclusive. You can ensure that you have an inclusive pride structure and at the same time exercise our activism. And I'm hoping that as we go through this discussion, this debate that folks are having, that folks see a way to reconcile those two. A year from now, what do you hope we'll be talking about um, for the community? And I know that's very broad, but we're in those times where, you know, if you don't dream big and you don't speak it into, it, into existence, it might not happen. I would say a year from now, I'm hoping that we are celebrating or have celebrated the passage of the Equality Act, that we see the benefits of being fully protected under federal law, and we mobilize like never before to show our political muscle and really demonstrate that the majority of people in this country are in fact pro-equality. We know that we have the muscle, We know that we have the the commitment and the drive and the tenacity. And I hope that we're able to show that political muscle in this country because there's so much work we have to do here, but there's also a fair amount that we have to do internationally. We're in 69 countries around the world. Being LGBTQ or engaging in same-sex activity is criminal, in some cases punishable by death. So I want to keep a broader view on what we have to do here in the U.S., but also not lose sight of what we have to do internationally. Alfonso David, president of the Human Rights Campaign, not forever, (laughs) just a couple of years. (laughs) Alfonso, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.